0: Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 288 of our Take Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Food, Fitness, and Fashion, an interview with Amanda Milley. My name is Richard Johanneson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Folks, we here at Take Bootcamp are big fans of the Marvel superhero movies, and we actually met a real live superhero. We interviewed Amanda Milley. She's a young woman who immigrated from Zimbabwe to the United Kingdom. And when she arrived there, she developed a passion for wellness. She was an enthusiast for food and for fitness. And as a result, when she was bitten by a tick, her body was able to manage the Lyme disease bacteria for many years until she pivoted over to the fashion industry. When she became a fashion model, rather than having food and fitness serve her, she actually turned it on its head and she actually became a part of the gym culture and she started to deprive herself of food. As a result, she became chronically ill.
1: And Rich, Amanda reinforced what we learned on our last podcast episode with Dr. Kinder Lehrer. She described how no matter what, she was going to get better. She was sick for almost 13 years before finally getting a diagnosis. And she was so sick, she needed help walking to the bathroom. She had constant tremors, and she was in bed almost 20 hours a day. Amanda goes into great detail about the 10 step healing process she learned from her doctor that ultimately got her life back. She goes into great detail about all things detox, killing, and of course, many other things besides Lyme disease, since it's never just Lyme.
0: Folks, you'll see the final chapter in the superhero story is that Amanda turned back to wellness, and when she allowed food and fitness to serve her rather than to hurt her, she built a foundation for healing, which resulted in her overcoming the challenges that she faced with Lyme disease. Without further ado, we're really excited to introduce to you our 3F superhero, Amanda Milley. Hello, Amanda Milley, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast.
2: Hello, thanks for having me.
0: Well, thank you for being kind enough to take time out of your very busy day there in the UK and uh, and joining uh, our community and sharing your story. So Amanda, talk to us about, first of all, where you were from originally and where you are now currently living.
2: Yes, so I am Zimbabwean born. Uh, I was born in Zimbabwe, lived there and moved when I was about 10. Moved to the United Kingdom and have been pretty much a Londoner ever since.
0: All right. So talk to us about first what it was like to grow up in Zimbabwe and then uh, and then how things changed for you when you moved to the UK.
2: Oh, my goodness. So my memories of Zimbabwe, obviously it's a, di- it's a different Zimbabwe now, but the memories that I have are just lots of outdoor playing, lots of just fun, carefree. Um, I was never really at home. So it was very much a community living kind of way where you could just go to your neighbor's house for lunch or you can go. I would be out of the house at nine in the morning and my parents would look for me at six to be like, it's time to come home now. Where have you been? So no one would even blink or be thinking, where is Amanda? It was assumed that I was fine. And I was.
0: So it was a a very, very sort of large family environment that you were living in when you were in Zimbabwe.
2: It was. Yes, it was. So it was quite the culture shock when we moved to the UK, because also I remember it was right in the middle of winter. It was December when we moved here. And I just remember, first of all, the shock from the difference in the weather being absolutely freezing at the airport, thinking what on earth is happening right now? (laughs) And um, just, yeah, it was very different. So I went from just completely being outdoors all the time to just being at home and watching TV and not knowing anybody. And London living is really different because people don't even know their neighbors you know, you could live in the same apartment building and not even know your neighbor's first name. So to me, that was just so strange and so weird. Like, how do people live like this? So yeah, it was quite a shock. shock so you season.
0: went from a place where the weather was warm and the people were warm to a place <laughs> where the weather is cold and the people were and cold.
2: That's a good one. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, that was quite, it was, it took quite a lot to get used to. And it took a while, like a few months, to get settled and you know actually start school. So I had some time where I was just at home, just watching cartoons all the time, which wasn't very fun.
0: So now, when you were a young child in Zimbabwe, mm-hmm. um, were you aware of any of the potential predators, whether they be bugs or animals that you needed to be safe from so that you wouldn't get sick? I mean. We have a
2: lot of bugs in Zimbabwe. We have a lot of that. The The only thing that I was always scared of was things like snakes and scorpions, you know, there weren't any bugs. I didn't like bugs, but I didn't really think I could get sick from bugs. It wasn't even a part of my reality.
0: All right. So now you moved to the UK
2: mm-hmm.
0: and you have this very different experience with cold weather and cold people <laughs> uh, but you you then become a part of the you know the educational community you start going to school yeah. and talk to us about what the educational experience was like um in london educational experience was uh, a little
2: different but somehow i was just happy to have more of a social life i think you know i was able to make friends um it was interesting that everything in, including fun and play was so organized over here. So whereas in Zimbabwe, I could just go to the neighbors and play with my friends, we had to organize play dates. It was it was a very interesting contrast for me, but definitely a lot better now that I was able to acclimatize myself.
0: So now when you were when you were going through your educational experience in London, um, yeah. were you taking any health courses or any courses that were designed to help you to understand who you are and what you needed to do to keep yourself healthy?
2: no i think we we learned a lot about the normal things that you know like malaria or other disease we never really learned anything in involving anything to do with like you know being bitten or what is what the protocol was so i had zero knowledge of anything of that nature
0: So you had zero knowledge from your either cultural or educational experience in Zimbabwe about ticks or tick diseases. And then you come to the UK and you have zero information about ticks and tick diseases during your either cultural or or formal education in the UK, correct? Yeah, exactly. All right. So uh, there does come a time, Amanda, during your childhood in the UK where you get bitten by a tick. So share with us about that experience.
2: Yes. So we had gone camping. So it was about 13, 14, I remember. Um, We'd gone camping and it it wasn't, it was just outside of London. So it wasn't anywhere that's super rural. And I remembered the next afternoon, I saw that I had a tick bite um, on my leg. I didn't actually even know that it was a tick bite. I remember showing a friend of mine and she was like, oh, just pull it off. I pulled it off and forgot about it. <laughs> Didn't think about it again. Um, I Then, I think the next day, discovered that I had a bit of a rash in the area that I'd had it. And I, to be honest, showed it to my mom. She was like, oh, you know, just put some ointment on it, it'll be fine. And that was the last time we ever spoke about that.
0: Just okay. life carried on. All right, well, um, I'm sorry that was the last time you ever spoke about that then, but we're gonna speak a little bit more about that <laughs> here so that we can we can build this out as friends. So. Well, you said that we went camping. Who were the we that you went camping with?
2: So I went camping. It was a school trip. So there was um, just teachers and other fellow students. Um, It was one of those. um, We used to do like outside trips uh, at least twice or three times a year. I had never been camping in my entire life so I was really excited about this and it was all right fun you know we did a lot of like camping fireside chats and you know making roasting marshmallows and things like that so um, overall to be honest to me it was just an amazing time. Right, I just happened to get bitten. That was it. Well,
0: well, we're going to talk about that in a second. So you you were sleeping in sleeping bags, I assume, and you were were sleeping in tents, and you were sitting near the fire, and you were doing all the cool things, all the cool outdoorsy things that you do. Um, And, of course, the only time that we can have fun doing any activity, any outdoor activity, of course, is if we make sure that we put ourselves in a position where we're safe. And we put proper precautions in place. So for example, if we were going out camping somewhere where there were bears, we'd want to make sure that we properly protected ourselves from being attacked by a bear or having our food eaten by a bear, right? So what kinds of precautions were you urged to take um, as a student um, when you were going on to, when you're going out to this trip with your, uh, with your fellow students and your teachers?
2: yeah. Um, I think it was just, there wasn't any, because it was just outside of London, we didn't have any fear of wild animals or anything like that. And it's the UK, so we don't have snakes and things like that. So, really the only precautions that we were told the most was to just, you know, stick together, Um, maybe some bug spray in case there's like a mosquito to, you know, just to keep yourself from getting bitten by that and um, have fun.
0: So there, So now what kind of precautions did your mom and your, and your family urge you to take, right? I mean, obviously, you know, as a parent yourself, when your children are away from you, right? And when, when your chickens are away from, you know, the mother hen, you're always going to have your anxieties, right? And there are going to be little pieces of advice that I'm sure you'd give to your boys or your mom had given to you. So what kind of advice did your mom give to you before you went off on your, uh, your little camping excursion um, with school?
2: not to stray from the group to stay you know stay with the group um and why is that stay, let's say
0: let's say that for a second why do you think your mom would tell you not to sh- stray from the group or why would you give that same advice to your boys if they were going on the same trip
2: yeah just to stay safe not to get lost in the woods right much, yeah. or
0: make sure nobody nobody kidnaps you or exactly you don't find yourself uh, you know, find yourself so there are some protections that have to be put in place because we wouldn't want anything inappropriate to happen, whether it be a kidnapping or anything like that. So there, so we were, so there certainly was this concern that, you know, you would not come in contact with an unhealthy person who might do something that could be harmful yes. to her. Now you said they also urged you to bring bug spray. Why Why was that an important part of, of uh, the protections that you were gonna be putting in place?
2: Yes, yeah, so you don't, I think the biggest thing we were scared of was mosquitoes. So you don't get bit by mosquitoes. So, you know, to protect yourself from getting bitten.
0: Right. So you can get malaria. You can get all kinds of other diseases from it. Right? Yeah. So one of the things that I, that I find to be really interesting is that when you were living in, um, in Africa, you were concerned about scorpions. Right. I mean, that yeah. was one of the things you pointed out that you were a little concerned about before you before you immigrated to the UK. Um, and I'm wondering whether or not now that, you know, that ticks are in the scorpion family, whether or not maybe that was something that uh, you should have had some heightened awareness <laughs> about before going out on your camping trip.
2: Yeah, I suppose. But, you know, it, it, it was it didn't even factor at the time.
0: Right. So now you, you, you get this tick bite. Uh, you only share it with your friend. You don't keep the tick. Right. You just throw it away. Right. And, yeah. and then you get a rash. How long after the tick bite did you begin to see the rash?
2: Um, I noticed a rash that developed the next day. So um, the next afternoon, actually, um, I just looked at my leg and I noticed there was a rash there, and I assumed it was from the tick bite because I thought, okay, you you know, I got bitten, so it's to be expected that you would have some kind of reaction from it.
0: So I mean, what did the what did the rash look like? Was it a bullseye rash? Was it? It a was a bullseye.
2: Rash? Well, now I know it to have been a bullseye. Yes. Um, but at the time, I I didn't even think twice about it. I didn't show it to anybody until I got home
0: a few days later. Okay, so you you, you now get home and you're all excited to be back home again, and and you're now uh, you're now at least aware enough of this rash that you want to share it with another person. Was it your mom, your dad? Who did you share the rash I with?
2: I shared it with my mom, and um, she doesn't really know much anyway about ticks or tick bites so she just said let's just put an ointment on it um it'll be fine and that's what we did at the time
0: so do you know what kind of ointment your mom gave to you and 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 if you do do you know if it had any steroids in it
2: i i wouldn't know i'm not not sure about that
0: yeah so so your mom thought it was something that wasn't urgent enough you'd even have to go to a doctor to have it examined. she said hey let's just put this cream on and you put the cream on and you felt better
2: Pretty much. Yes.
0: Now between the time that the rash first surfaced and the next couple of weeks after the rash, did you have any, do you recall having any symptoms, any flu-like symptoms or anything that led you to feel that you might've been sick?
2: I did. I, I remember actually having flu-like symptoms. And again, it was one of those things where we thought, well, it's probably, uh, we, we never made the connection between me feeling poorly to being bitten because we weren't aware. So we just thought, maybe it's a cold. And my mom was like, you've just been with a bunch of your friends. You know, maybe you got something from one of them. Who knows?
0: So you were out having a wild time (laughs) in the woods with your friends and you came back, you know, with no surprise that you were, you had a cold and you had, you got, you picked up something from everyone else. And it wasn't, again, serious enough for you to go to a doctor. It was something that you could take care of at home with, you know, whatever home remedies your mom was going to be using, whether it be aspirin or, you you know, cold medicine or something like that. Right? Yes. All right. So, how long did the 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 flu-like symptoms last before you went back to you know being healthy again?
2: So I remember actually being feeling poorly for about a couple of weeks, and thinking this is taking longer um, to recover from than when normally I get. I normally get, I would get a cold for like a few days and then I would be fine, and um, just being really extremely exhausted for like a week after that, and then I think things just kind of went back to normal. Although, I say normal, um, it wasn't the normal that I was used to. I, from that time, I would constantly get tired easily, I remember that, um, but never never made the connection.
0: So, I mean, from the research that we've done on you, we—I I can tell that you're—you're you're an athlete, right? I mean, you—you've posted a number of different uh, images of you working out on Instagram, and you're an athlete. Were you an athlete as a child, or was that something that developed uh, during your adult life?
2: Uh, so, well. I think it, d- it developed during my, as a young adult, I, I discovered I was constantly when I was in school because I was really tall from a very young age, I would have everybody wanting me to be on the netball team or on the basketball team and things like that. And as I got a bit older, I really discovered a love for physical exercise. Um, I fell in love with running. I just fell in love with working out. I always loved how I felt after I did a workout and I used to go really hard with the kind of workouts I did. Like I loved the intense workouts. I loved the endorphins I used to get after doing that. So it was just something that was, it brought me pleasure. something that I just really did for fun.
0: So talk to us about how this tick bite and the health issues that you were developing were impacting now your life, specifically um, your health and when you were engaging in physical activities?
2: So at that at that age from when I was bitten, I wasn't as physical as I got later on in life. So I think I, I really started to get into working out and being physical from about the age of 18. Um, at that point, I didn't have any um, symptoms or anything that was in my face enough for me to say oh okay no this is a problem I would have like what I know now would have flare-ups here and there I would have moments where I'd have extreme fatigue for days or I would wake up in the middle of the night drenched in my own sweat and then it would it would ease it was ebbs and flows so I was still able to somewhat have a life a normal life I just thought of it oh that's just weird and would carry on
0: so let's talk about, again, that life. I mean, so you said that you, you, you began to develop a passion for exercise and fitness. Mm-hmm. So they were healthy lifestyle choices that you're engaging in. How yeah. was your diet and how was your, your lifestyle otherwise? Were you living a largely healthy life? And do you believe that allowed you to sort of manage these ebbs and flows that were coming with these flare-ups?
2: That's very interesting. I was, I was living a very healthy life. I, I was really aware of what I was putting in my body. At the time and um i was doing a lot of health I was i wasn't really drinking as much i i was eating pretty much a paleo lifestyle at the time and not having sugar and i think that looking back now that probably contributed to me feeling better and not having those flare-ups as much as i did
0: Right. So your, your body was able to manage the, uh, the microbes that the tick had spit into you because yeah. you were living a very healthy lifestyle and you were managing these microbes and then you could. Right. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, before we get to when your body was saying no and you finally got sick and needed to seek uh, medical intervention, what types of things were you working on? Meaning what was your vision for your life and what and, and where did your education take you?
2: yes so um i I was modeling full time a lot of the time um i was was doing a lot of things actually now that I think about it um so I graduated in magazine publishing and I very much wanted to go into that that world and I was doing some work experience and had hopes of one day studying my own wellness um magazine because that was my interest so um apart from like fashion modeling, I was you know working and doing internships, um, pretty far it was a pretty fast-paced life. So there were times when I was working maybe like 16 hours, 14 hours a day. But I, I enjoyed it. So it didn't feel like it was work.
0: So it sounds like it was uh it was an exciting life. It sounds like uh you were given some opportunities uh you know to to model which of course is really exciting. Uh but one of the things that you know we often see when we interview folks in the entertainment industry and the modeling industry in particular, is there are a lot of stresses, right? Yes. Some of the stresses come along with, with just the amount of hours you have to work, some of the stresses come along with just the you know the kind of pressure you're under in the entertainment industry and some of the unhealthy people you come in contact with. Some of it has to do with the demands that are put on on entertainment professionals and models in particular so talk to us about how all of that was impacting your health and and how that ultimately perhaps played a role in your body ultimately saying no
2: yes so i've had a lot of time to really think back to that time and as exciting as it was you know in in modeling there is a lot of pressure as well to look a certain way and my my love for fitness and eating well actually developed into an eating disorder. So I think that's when things started to take a downward slope. I was not eating well, sometimes under eating, sometimes binging and purging, and I was over exercising. So I was putting my body through an intense amount of pressure and no longer nourishing myself as I should.
0: So I mean, one of the things we've talked about with some of the guests uh, that we've interviewed in the past is the gym culture, right? Mm -hmm. And the culture of exercising for appearance rather than to support ourselves and support our immune system. And now you're introducing another interesting concept, which is eating not in a way sort of of the, the nutritional element of the gym culture where you're eating not to support yourself and support your body, but because of the way you would appear, right? So, yeah. um, talk to us about talk to us about how your love for fitness kept you very healthy during an element of your life or a long stage in your life, and your and your and your um, desire to support yourself and to feel good because that's how you described it just a moment ago. Yeah, you became passionate about fitness because you enjoyed how it made you feel, not mm. look. Feel And you said you were really careful about what you put into your body. And during that window of your life, you were able to manage the microbes and then things changed, right? You were, you, you were engaging in fitness and at least nutritional uh, activities that were based on not supporting yourself, but your appearance. So talk about how that pivot changed uh, your capacity to manage the microbes.
2: Yeah, it's, it's quite a contrast, isn't it? Um, because I remember being so obsessed about getting to a certain body fat percentage. And I remember I, I would Google it all the time. How can I get to less than 10% body fat? Which now I think about it is absolutely ludicrous. It's ridiculous. Especially um, for a woman, right? I mean- Exactly. It, it, yeah. <laughs> um, but um, the, the thing, with it for me was that the skinnier I got, um, the more work I got in the modeling industry. So it took me a lot longer to actually realize that there was a problem here because I was doing all these unhealthy things. I was pretty much running on empty and I was booking jobs and I was being told how amazing I looked. And I really ignored a lot of Huge red flags like my hair started to fall out, and I, you know, like what, what can I buy? What treatment can I do to sort this out rather than stop and think, okay, wait, we need to stop and evaluate what's happening right now?
0: So, because you are being rewarded by the entertainment industry for the changes in your appearance, you continue to make more of those and continue to take more of those changes, and now. In addition to your hair falling out, what else was happening with your health? Meaning, what, yeah. what symptoms were developing that you now know to be your Lyme disease symptoms?
2: Yeah, so I was getting really tired a lot. Uh, brain fog became a part of my daily life. Um, I was forgetting the most mundane things. I was. There was a time I think when I really, really woke up is I was so tired, I was sleeping all day. And still feeling exhausted, waking up feeling exhausted. I started to, and I, you know, I ignored all those things, even as they were happening, which is it's ridiculous. Cause anybody who would t- tell me even an ounce of the symptoms I had right now, I would be like, this is an emergency. But I kept going and um, my body decided it was it was going to make me stop. <laughs> by any point. And I remember I was at an event, I was quite exhausted at the day and I went to this event, forced myself to get ready, get dressed. Um, I got there, started to feel really groggy, started to feel really tired. Um, I went to put my shoes on and I couldn't even bend over to buckle my shoes. My friend had to walk me to get, my, get me into a taxi. I came home and I remember my partner when I was getting undressed looking at me in absolute shock. Um, I had, was my, my entire body had so much inflammation. I had a hunchback on my back and I couldn't, I couldn't stand, I couldn't walk. And from that point on, it was, um, I was in bed for a good month from that day. I needed help going to the bathroom and coming back. I was having, I was waking up shaking all over. I was drenched in sweat. I, I couldn't even like, I was so affected by little things like sounds and like the TV and things like that. I just couldn't. I, a lot of the time I wanted to be in a dark room by myself.
0: So when did you first start to seek medical intervention? Meaning when did you first start to see doctors during this phase of your journey before your body said no and you crashed?
2: So I actually seeked medical um, help quite a lot over the years because, as I said, um, symptoms were coming in ebbs and flows. So anytime I would have um, like a a bit of a a flare-up, I knew that that wasn't okay. I knew that that wasn't normal. Um, the biggest thing as well that I always had for me that was an indicator is I would have the night sweats and um, I would go to my doctor and he'd be like, maybe you're diabetic, maybe it's this, maybe you just, you know, tired. you need to eat a bit more healthier. And there's quite a lot of times when I would go to the doctor and I would just be fobbed off. You know, um, my doctor labeled me a hypochondriac and told me that i needed to just relax <laughs> and i i would change doctor in the uk we have the national Health health service which is free um and on for the average person i think that's amazing but the downside to that is if you've gone to the doctor been to the doctor several times about the same thing and maybe he did some bloods and was like well it was it all came out normal so we're not allowed to test you again because we tested you and it was normal. So, so therefore the problem is in your head. So there wasn't really f- much you could go with that.
0: So let's, let's unpack three things with this por- portion of your journey. So the first thing is you know, you're in a national health system, which we don't he- have here in the US. And yeah. we, we, can, we can debate about whether or not that's a good or a bad system. Uh, But it sounds to me like you think that the national health system in the UK is a good system for somebody who's acutely ill, but not a good system for somebody who may be chronically ill.
2: Exactly. I do. And I don't really necessarily blame the doctors on here. Like the national health system is very strained. And when you go to see your doctor, even now, you're given 15 minutes with the doctor. You don't get longer than that because there's lots of other patients that they're waiting to see. So often I, and I had a conversation with a friend of mine who was saying, I have these three things I need to figure out which is more important to tell my doctor because they're not going to have time to address all of it. So if you're constantly going there with the same thing, um, they just don't have the time for it.
0: Okay. So, so the first, the first challenge you faced as a chronically ill person in the UK is, your healthcare system is one that offers you 15 minutes with a doctor and your history goes with you. And if you've been tested with something, you're not allowed to be tested again. Yes. All right. Let's talk about a second issue. And the second issue is your gender. What we've, uh, we've heard from many, many people on this podcast is that they believe that they've been treated differently by the medical system because they're women rather than men. Do you, think, do you think the system in the UK that you were working within treated you differently or devalued you um, as a result of your
2: gender? 1000%, without a doubt. I think, you know, and a lot, a lot of the doctors that I've dealt with were men, actually. Um, a lot of the times I, was, I wasn't believed. Um, a lot of the times I, there were so many times when I left the doctor's office in tears because I was made to feel like I was just a hypochondriac and I needed to calm down. I've had doctors tell me maybe just eat healthy and do some exercise, you know, just go do some meditation and it'll be fine.
0: So you you believe that because you're female, the doctors were writing you off as a drama queen.
2: Yes, exactly.
0: All right, let's talk about now unpack the third piece of this, which is you're a black woman from Africa. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that your race or your your immigration uh, from a foreign country played a role in the way that doctors treated you when you went um, to be examined and treated for your illness?
2: So I I used to have conversations about this all the time with friends of mine. And because a lot of my friends were white, um, it was really difficult for me to get my point across as Black women, as a Black woman in general, um, I, I, I think maybe they thought that my, my pain threshold was higher. Um, I, I have had to fight even harder to be believed or fight even harder to have tests done. Um, I've had to write in, I remember when I finally, was had had enough and was told we can't test you for anything else I had to seek help from a friend who was also a doctor and have him write a letter for me that was formally written and written in the lingo that they would understand before they could even be like oh okay then come on then we'll draw some bloods so I feel like it, it just it gets, gives you an extra layer, apart from just being a woman, being a black woman, as well as being you know, African. It, it didn't play in my favor at all.
0: So let me ask you about this dichotomy that I've, I've thought about before when we've interviewed black women in the past, right? We have on the one side of the coin, this bias that black women have a higher pain threshold, But on the other side of the coin, we have this we have this issue where women are thought to be essentially drama queens and hypochondriacs when they come in. So I'm wondering why perhaps doctors wouldn't give you more credibility as a black woman who allegedly has a higher pain threshold (laughs) if you're coming in and complaining about your illness and not calling you a drama queen. So talk to me about that conflict and how that, you know, that that played out in your head.
2: Yeah, I think it's just, you know, especially coming from my experience with the NHS, um, the doctors that I've dealt with here while I was still, cause I, I've since went private, I, I realized in order to take my health um, seriously, I was gonna have to shell out the money and go private. Um, with the doctors here, there was very much a lack of empathy and a lack of um, understanding or even wanting to understand your situation. Or even seeing you as an individual. I don't think I was seen as an individual. From the minute I walk into the office, I'm already labeled and I'm put in a box. So it's really hard for them to really see Amanda, the person there.
0: Simply because the volume of work that they have in a national health system doesn't allow them to do that. So what does it mean to go private? I mean, that's another thing that, you know, that, um, you know, we deal with in a different context here in the U.S. What does it mean to go private?
2: So I I soon realized that I was I was getting sicker and sicker. Uh, I was having a lot of these symptoms and being told it's in my head, or you know, being told to take some antidepressants because clearly that was the issue. Um, and so I started seeking answers myself. You know, I started going online. I started trying to read things, and I started I, I found out that if I wanted to get tests done, um, I would have to go private and pay private doctors um, for that. So it's a lot different um, here because then it, it starts to become very expensive because with a lot of like those doctors it, before they can even, in, for them to even have a consultation with you is like 300 pounds. <laughs> for them to sit down and talk to you and be like, okay, tell us about yourself. Can um, okay, you
0: Give us a context for folks in the US who are listening to this. What does 300 pounds mean? Meaning how much, how much were you making per week um, and what percentage of your weekly salary would 300 pounds equate to?
2: Um, well, because I was, I was modeling, so I was in a really good financial, I was, I was lucky, let's say. So I, I was making good money um, at the time because I could get a job that would pay me five figures, you know, or, and things like that. But for the average person in the UK, sometimes that's their entire salary.
0: An entire week's salary would be, yeah. would be, would be taken up in a one.
2: In division. a consultation. Now,
0: yeah. So, so, I mean, we're talking about, we're talking about a, a great deal of money. Uh, yeah. For the average person to step out of the public health system and to go to a private doctor. Now, um, is it legal for doctors to have private practices in the UK or did you have to leave the UK and go somewhere else for your, um, your private treatments?
2: Um, it is legal for doctors to have private practices in the UK. Um, they're all kind of clustered. Like in London, we have Harley Street, which is like the private medical street of London, and they all the private doctors are there. Um, but the thing that I learned as well is that like, going private doesn't necessarily mean I'm, I'm getting the level of care that I want to need. So even with that, I had to go through quite a few doctors and some of them work on the NHS by the way, and they also have private practices. So I still had to go through the same thing with some of these doctors telling me that I was crazy pretty much, or misdiagnosing me, or you know, pretty much not really giving me anything that was of help. So then I then started, as I started to look online, I then started to seek doctors who were in other places. Um, I remember I spoke to a doctor who was in Australia, I spoke to a doctor who was in Arizona, and there was this one particular doctor who really took my medical history, like asked me from my childhood to then at that time, and then told me, look, I can't treat you because you'd have to be over here, Um, but I think you might have Lyme.
0: Okay, so let's pause there. This is an important part in this podcast. Is that the first time you ever heard the word Lyme disease?
2: That was the very first time i had ever, the only Lyme I knew was the citrus fruit. Okay, (laughs) so
0: when you were doing your online research and you were sort of building out the symptoms that you were feeling and trying to get to an answer, did you ever come across any Lyme disease pages or any Lyme disease groups where perhaps you were, you were, you were, and this is again before you heard the word Lyme from the doctor that you spoke to? Did you ever have, have this epiphany that perhaps you had Lyme disease?
2: Um, I think I did see a few things, but I didn't really make the connection because all my symptoms, I would, I never really used to Google all my symptoms together. So I might Google this one symptom, and it tells me it might be a thyroid issue or I Google this and it tells me, you know, you might be Babesia or like this. And I never really, that was the first time I think I had listed all my symptoms and everything that I had been experiencing in one go. And
0: so where, I mean, where was this doctor that you gave all of this information to and you finally sort of gave a full outline of all of your symptoms?
2: Yeah. So this is an Australian doctor. So I had a friend who was living in the UK, but was Australian, who recommended this doctor to me because um, her family has a history with chronic illness. Um, and she has Hashimoto's. So she was like, you know, talk to this doctor and, you know, maybe they can point you in the right direction.
0: Okay. So now you hear this word Lyme disease. Uh, You had maybe heard some words that you know that that uh, you know. And I want to talk to you about the babesia in a in a second. Um, But now you have this now you have this 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 new disease on your radar. What does that cause you to do?
2: So the doctor said, I think you might have Lyme disease. I'm thinking, okay, well then I need to get tested. (laughs) Um, I need to find out if I have this disease. I need to go and get a test. So I went back to the private doctor I was working with, like, can you test me for Lyme disease? They did the test, it came back negative.
0: Okay, so let's pause there for a second. So when you went to the private doctor who you were paying a ton of money to, and again, I know you had resources because you were modeling at the time, and, and again, you're still modeling, but you, you had a lot of resources. So you're paying this doctor, what is the equivalent of a week, a week's wages for the average person in the UK, and you say to the doctor, "Hey, I want to be I want to be tested for Lyme disease." Did the doctor say you have a whole range of options that you can use for testing? Did the doctor say that that you know most of these tests are not um, are not uh, accurate tests? Did the doctor you know give you any insight into you know the possibility of having co-infections and maybe you know Lyme disease is defined as a lot of different things? I mean, what? did this doctor say to you when you said, I wanna be tested for Lyme?
2: The doctor said, there's no way you would have Lyme disease. There is no way you'd have Lyme disease. You live in the UK. We don't really even have cases of Lyme disease that I know of, um, but if you wanna get tested, okay. That was pretty much, it was like a shrug of the shoulders, fine. There was nothing else that way. Well, he did mention that um, the test might not be 100% accurate. I'll give him that, but that was about it. Um, we didn't discuss anything else.
0: Okay. So it's your money. You want to be tested. You don't have (laughs) this disease here. We'll do that. By the way, the testing is not all that accurate. And you, you, you pay for the test anyway. I pay for the test anyway.
2: Yes. So the Um, test
0: comes back negative, right? uh, So what does that mean to you in your mind at that time? Are you thinking, all right, I don't have Lyme disease. Or are you thinking, hey, the doctor said the test isn't all that accurate, perhaps I need to uh, take some additional steps to build out uh, an understanding of whether or not I have this disease.
2: Yeah, when the test came, you know, when the doctor, the Australian doctor told me that he thought I might have Lyme, I really started to go and read up about it quite a lot. And the more that I read, the more that I was like, yeah. They was speaking I, to I, you, right? Yeah, I think, I think this is it. So when the test came back negative, I really didn't buy it. Um, I thought, nope, there's, there's gotta be some. So I started going back online and trying to find forums where there'd be other people talking about their experience, because it was a very lonely experience at the time. I felt very much alone and I really needed to find somebody or other people who were maybe experiencing the same things that I could talk to and get some advice or get some perspective. And, um, From doing that, then I realized that, oh, okay, a negative negative test doesn't really mean I don't have it.
0: Now, when is the first time you thought back to the tick bite and the rash and the flu symptoms you had during your childhood after you had the, um, after you had the the line put on your radar?
2: Yeah, so it didn't click immediately. So you would think that, hearing Lyme and then um, reading about it that I would have made the connection. But it was when I was in the forum and I was talking to people and somebody else spoke about being bitten early on that I was like, oh my goodness, you know, I I made the connection. Like I was was bitten by this. And I was like talking to other people, like could this be like, surely not because it's more than a decade ago, (laughs) there's no way. Like if that was it, then it would be, it would have been over with. It would have been done with. I didn't get as sick then as I am now, um, but then, like again, like talking, talking to people and learning more about it was was when really the real ping in my head started to happen.
0: So let's talk about your online experience because there's an upside and a downside to online experiences. So you've given us an outline of some of the positive elements of the online experience, which was. You started to connect with people who were helping you to identify symptoms and helping you to make connections between experiences that you had earlier on in your life and now what you were experiencing at this stage of your illness. that was very positive from an yeah. information standpoint. Were there any negatives for you when you were online?
2: Oh my goodness, so many. <laughs> so many. I find like the it's the information that is out there is so contradictory. That was the thing, so much contradiction contradicting information, um especially for me because i a lot of the people that i was connecting with had i I felt it had been quite straightforward for them they got the bite they got the bullseye you know they got the diagnosis blah, blah blah and for me it's something that was like now a good decade or more later years later and you know it's questionable and people say no there's no way you would you know feeling like this or be experiencing this and your test results came back as negative so and in the UK I would say as well only in the last couple of years have I started to see more information about Lyme being put out there at the time my GP didn't know what to do with me (laughs) they they didn't know
0: now can the, the the so the the dark side uh, or the negative side that people have to be prepared for when they're going online and interacting with people in social communities? Were, were there any other dark sides of that element? Meaning, were there people who were aggressive with you? or there people who said that you, you don't really have line? You shouldn't be in this community? Or the are there people who saying that you know uh, that there's no way that somebody could have? you know, this long gap in time, even though that happens more times than not with this chronic illness. We'll put, we'll put yeah. that aside for a moment. Were, 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 there any, were there any people who were not being supportive of you in the Lyme community?
2: I think it felt like a bit of a rejection, actually, at one point where I felt like, okay, I found people who, understand and who are going through what I'm going through and then also to also have them kind of mirror what I've been hearing from doctors and tell me that you know there's no way that I could be feeling this ill or there's no way it could be Lyme. go and look for something else or maybe you know like your symptoms I had quite a lot of people as well um, talk to me about like maybe I was feeling depression or maybe I was you know like the word I'm still triggered to this day by the tame hypochondriac to this day, I am triggered. If, if anybody ever called me that right now, I think I would fight them.
0: <laughs> <Right>. So <laughs> We don't want anybody putting up any hands on this podcast. So now I, I now want to talk to you about again. You had some challenges in the medical system as a result of your culture, your gender, and your race, yeah. right? Were there, were you facing similar issues in the online community? Meaning, were you seeing people that looked like you? Were seeing people who were, um, people who were, um, you know, from uh, your country? Were you finding any people that you could connect with either culturally or racially or anything uh, when you were in the community? And I wasn't,
2: I wasn't at all. I, I didn't see anybody that looked like me. Um, I couldn't. and. It's, it's really interesting when I think about that now, because I think it's only when I started watching some of yoga, guys, like following you guys on social media, have I been like, oh my gosh, a black woman. <laughs> Um, that that's the first time and that's like last year, you know, I wasn't seeing anybody that looked like me, let alone anybody, you know, who was a black African woman. Um, apparently from what I'm told Lyme disease does not exist in Africa, which I know is
0: a lie. So let's, 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 let's clarify that it's a huge problem in Africa, but we'll get there in a minute.
2: Yeah, exactly. So um, it was a very lonely time online and also in in real life at home. It was very lonely because nobody in my immediate family or my close friends understood or knew what I was even talking about. You OK, know. so
0: let's talk about that, because I, I did want to build that up before, before we get to your diagnosis and Matt starts to um, explore some topics with you. Um, so... Um, how was your, your, your family and friends treating you when you were, you were complaining of symptoms and you were really sick, um, but all of your 20 doctors that you treated with were saying there was nothing wrong with you? How are, how are your friends and family reacting to that?
2: So when I talk about family, immediate family, um, the cultural um, aspect of it is um, in Africa, um, certainly from my experience, the doctor is the be all and end all you know you have a headache or you have a little sniffle you go to the doctor you get your diagnosis you get your medication and then off you go it was very very hard for people close to me to understand um or to even um advocate for me or understand me advocating for myself or questioning the doctors so it was hard for them to feel empathy compassion or to even support me because for them is the doctors have said this so what makes you qualified All
0: right so so Amanda what you're you're saying and I just want to be clear about this because the doctors have such high standing in the African culture that yes. you're you're a part of if the doctor says there's nothing wrong with you then there's nothing there's wrong, nothing with, wrong you. with you and, and no one believed Amanda despite what their eyes were telling them and what they knew about you
2: yeah exactly and it, it was a very lonely time you know i mean i speak to my mother and i'm i'm sick and at this point i'm pretty much in bed 16 hours a day you know and i i've exhausted and i know that you know i was in a better financial position but i had exhausted i almost went bankrupt um, tr- just trying to get a diagnosis we're not even talking treatment yet <laughs> just trying to get a diagnosis and i don't feel like i have the support of the people who are closest to me because they don't understand it and they don't understand why I am questioning, you know, the doctors who are saying there's nothing wrong with me.
0: How did your family react to you telling them that perhaps you had Lyme disease?
2: They had no, what's that?
0: <laughs> that well, was the they, first. Did that at least now that there was, now that there was a term that perhaps described what was going on for you, did that give you an opportunity to, perhaps gain some credibility with your family?
2: Mm, I think um, the thing that kept me going is that my partner at the time was very supportive. So as soon as you know, it was like, this is what we're dealing with, he was very hands-on, very supportive. What do we need to do? Outside of him, I would say maybe my best friend was very supportive and very loving, but my family just didn't understand it. They didn't get it.
0: Right, let me explore one more piece of this with you, uh, and then we'll get to your diagnosis. Um, was there anyone in your family who was sort of looking at you and some of the professional slash lifestyle choices that you made with regard to your diet and your um, and your body image related exercise, essentially saying, well, you made your choice, Amanda, you're working out the way you're working out and you're dealing with these body images, image, image issues, and you're not eating properly. You made your bed yeah
2: i mean i i got a bit of that as well but to be quite honest with you i feel like maybe some of them thought i was doing drugs (laughs) um you're you know you're in the industry this is what it is are you sure maybe this is just a facade what have you been doing What, what life choices have you been making so some of it was quite hurtful so i really just had to just tune that and turn that off
0: okay so now you finally get a diagnosis, right? You, uh, you have the suspicion of Lyme disease, you're participating in these forums, you're starting to, you know, the, the disease is speaking to you. Your body is telling you, yes, you have this disease. It makes sense. How do you finally get a diagnosis, despite not having a test that, um, you know, that when the doctor initially gave you a test that indicates that you have Lyme disease and having a doctor or set a set of doctors say, Lyme disease is not in London.
2: Yeah, so I actually had to fly out to Germany, I remember, um, because I would found out that there was a, a doctor there who um, specialized in like um, tick-borne diseases and co-infections, so I flew out there um, and got tested, and I remember that he also said that it might not come back as um, positive, but we we went through a lot of like the the other things I was experiencing and the symptoms. And he then recommended, and I didn't know that these guys existed because I, I couldn't even find them online. But there was a place called the Lyme Disease Treatment Center in London. And there was a, um, Dr. Joshua Beckelwitz. Um, so they recommended that I go and see him. And that's when really treatment began.
1: So Amanda, you had to go from England to Australia just to get the inkling (laughs) of the fact that you had Lyme disease. Then you had to fly to Germany to be told, hey, there's this Lyme group called the Lyme disease treatment center in London where you finally went to get your diagnosis, correct? Yes, yes. I mean, it's just wild that the same is true in the States here. Many people go to Mexico, to Germany, et cetera, that you had to go to so many different countries and leave your home country just to get a diagnosis, right? So walk us through now when you finally go to the Lyme disease treatment clinic in London, Is that where they finally tested you and gave you a positive diagnosis? Was it clinical? Was it based on blood work? What was the type of diagnosis you received there?
2: Yeah, so it it wasn't as simple, I would say, as that. So, but then when I did go to see um, Dr. Joshua, I think the first thing that he asked me, he was like, well, there's a lot of tests that we could run and things like that. Let's just talk about your stress levels first. Let's just find out where you're at, you know, what's going on for you and, He wasn't willing to test me, like, do the Lyme disease tests, like, immediately, because I think I had just been tested again, and it had come back negative, but he immediately got me on this 10-step process um, that we were going to go through, and the first thing we started testing for was testing for parasites, um, seeing where my body was at with that, um, looking at where my gut health was at, and just trying... The approach that he took was just trying to treat me first and then attack the Lyme like later. So we got on a protocol where I was doing ozone therapy. I was um, we were doing gut health tests and seeing, you know what's happening parasite-wise. And uh, no surprise, I had a lot <laughs> of them. So I had to, you know, go on like this parasite cleanse, clear my body of parasites. Um, and then I think maybe testing for Lyme came at like step five, the fifth step. And then when we did get tested, I tested positive, which was a shock for me. I didn't really understand. Like how have I been negative, negative, negative all the time? And then we've been doing treatments and now it's coming up as positive.
1: <laughs> yeah, Amanda, that's not uncommon. They actually, this you know, sometimes they'll actually give people antibiotics to bring the Lyme out and then test because you're more likely to test positive after being on doxycycline because it's bringing it out into your system, right? So you treated yeah. first and then tested and then had a positive diagnosis of, of Lyme disease. But you mentioned the 10-step process. Do you recall um, what each step was? If not, can you give us just an overview of that 10-step process? Um,
2: I actually, before I came on here, I brought it up because I wanted to get it right. So there was a 10-step process, which was, um, hold on one second. Sure. Cause
1: I find it interesting that you started with, you know, the, the gut health and the parasites first, and then Lyme came later on in the process. That was step five, correct?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So he, he very much believes because I had told him as well that I tested quite a few times and nothing had come forward, you know, in terms of like with the Lyme disease. And I was actually starting to get to a point where I was at the end of my tether because I didn't understand. So the step, first step for him was like actually testing, but not for Lyme. So we we're testing for parasites. We did heavy metal testing. Um, we did um, quite a few, like lots of different tests. Like we tested my gut. So from that step, the next step was detoxing. And that was when.
1: I mean, I'm going to jump in real quick. I'm sorry for that. From that testing, you tested positive for parasites. Did you test positive yes. for anything else during phase one?
2: Pretty much almost everything that we tested, it was it was becoming a shock if it was negative. <laughs> so
1: including heavy metals, you, were, you yes. had heavy metal toxicity as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, so we did have to do um, heavy metal detoxing from that, same as with the parasite cleanse.
1: So part one, identify what's going on the best mm-hmm. we can. Part two, detox to help our bodies eliminate the parasites, eliminate the heavy metals, et cetera, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. So what was in step two, what specific detox tools do you use to get rid of the heavy metals, the parasites, et cetera?
2: Um, we did quite a lot. Um, so with the parasites, I think I was, I was cleansing for parasites for about almost six months. Um, and we did quite a few things like glutathione, um, drips, um, glutathione was very much a part of my, my life. We did drips, we did supplements, we did suppositories. (laughs) any way that I could take it pretty much when we were doing that. Um, Coffee enemas was doing that, a lot of those as well. And I found those helped a lot with um, just helping me with like the energy wise. Um, Infrared saunas, I was doing infrared saunas three times a week and that um, helped. It also helped me just in terms of like inflammation and with sleeping better. Um, Detox spots, yeah as well, I think most of what what I can remember. And there were things that they were encouraging me to do by myself at home as well, like dry body brushing every day before I get in the shower.
1: So this is a pretty comprehensive detox regimen you were on, it sounds like. Yeah. Now, Amanda, when you did step two, and you started doing all these things, were you getting relief? Were you feeling better? Or were you having hurt reactions as well?
2: Um, I wasn't. And I, I think that was the most frustrating thing. I'm really glad though that, um, Dr Joshua did warn me about this was like, look we're, we're gonna do all these things don't expect to feel good <laughs> immediately because I it really some apart from like being able to sleep better it really wrecked havoc on me. I felt horrible um, but I, I had been prepped for that so I knew to expect that that it might get worse before it gets better
1: Why did Dr. Joshua say you would feel worse before you felt better because these are things that are removing toxins from your body. So did he explain why you would feel bad when you were doing this detox phase?
2: Yeah. I think he explained that like, as the toxins obviously come up and it's been dominant for quite a while, it's not unusual for your body to react, you know, and for you to feel it until we kind of get to the other side where we're getting them completely out of your system.
1: Okay. And again, all of this is out of pocket. This is not something that's covered by the national, you know, no, health national program health. that you have there,
2: right? Okay. No, no. And the treatment, I'll tell you, was definitely more than 300 bucks a pop. <laughs> yeah, I went for broke, pretty much. I'm not even joking. Um, I I almost went broke with treatment.
1: So Amanda, what was step three after you did a detox?
2: So step three was the diet. We had to look at diet and reintroduction. What is the state? Oh, we did a I don't get it wrong. Um, just reduction of toxic exposure. Um, one of the biggest thing that we did at the very beginning that i could do at home was to you know be aware of the things that i was putting in my body and the things that i was using things like my deodorant um my cooking utensils These are all things i had no idea about you know um like my makeup my skincare things like that we just completely had to get rid of anything that might be toxic And
1: I'm sure that costs a lot of money as well to go clean with cosmetics, et cetera, house cleaning, you know, tools and even cooking utensils, right? All that I'm sure was far more money than buying something off the shelf at the store that was, that was maybe toxic or had heavy metals, et cetera. Correct?
2: Exactly. It is not cheap to live a clean lifestyle. Let me tell you that. (laughs) Definitely not. So walk us through step four step four was when we really started to support my body. We were looking at like the gut support. We were looking at, um, what kind of supplements I could, I could take to help me heal. Um, um, we were talking a lot about, um, just tools to use and supplements and things to do to really support my immune system.
1: So this was not, Supplements to kill this is still no. in a support environment to just build yeah. your body up, rebuild your immune system, rebuild your gut health, etc. Correct?
2: Yes, yes, exactly.
1: Do you recall, Amanda, any supplements or tools you were on at this point that were helping you? So were, we're you on any herbs or supplements for your gut health specifically that you can share with our listeners or anything that stands out during this step of the 10-step process that was noteworthy?
2: Um, I was I was taking a lot of different herbs. I remember that, but I think um in terms of supplements the way that dr joshua works is he we would do blood work to see where my my levels were with like all the vitamins that i would need and then we would supplement in that way because i didn't believe in you know just supplementing or or over supplementing so we would see where my vitamin levels were in terms of like vitamin c vitamin d and things like that and then he would prescribe supplements that would support me in that way um but then another thing as well was um just getting like normal sunshine that was heavily like try and you know go out when well, it's not always easy in England because it's always gray most of the time <laughs> but um that was also like a big thing of like just try and get natural natural sunlight. Um, grounding was another thing as well that was um, recommended that I do to just, you know, feet in the grass, feet on the ground every day for a few minutes just to get, give my body that extra support.
1: So Amanda, it's so interesting you bring these things up because for me personally, these past few weeks, I've been finding sunshine and grounding to be so helpful in my healing journey. But for me, it's helping even more with my nervous system, right? So I'll go yeah. outside and I'll sit in the sun, and I don't want to get out of the sun because by the time I'm done for an hour, two hours, and I'm out there for a while, I don't want to come back inside because I just feel like at such a state of calm that I never thought I'd experience that day, and it's just wild, right? So a lot of people, I'm going to kind of couple these two topics together. A lot of people always challenge us and DM us or e- email us or contact us and say, "Hey, I don't have money, I can't heal." I don't have the money Amanda did. She was a model. She had a ton of money, right? But you're giving us a model here. I mean, you're literally going through this 10-step process. Yeah. Many of the things you're outlining can be done, right? So we yes. can pick a lot of these things that you're sharing with us, implement them in our own lives and see real significant results is what I want to share with our listeners. I wanted to just take a moment to highlight that. And would you agree with that, Amanda, that there are a lot of free- or
2: 100%. And I love that you said that because I feel exactly the same. Right now it's summer and- I feel so good. Like in the morning I get up, I'll have, you know, a cup of tea outside with just my feet on the ground, you know, and just feel the sun on my face and just feel the earth. And we really underestimate just how much of a difference that makes.
1: So now in step four, support your body, gut support, supplements, sunshine, grounding, really this is really more of a restorative phase, right? So what comes next in in step five?
2: step five was building the immune system. And I think we, we kind of touched into that. We coupled them up (laughs) building the immune system, which, um, we used a lot of like olive leaf extract as well. And like cordyceps um, to just support my immune system, to get me, I guess, to, to get me to a place where I could be ready for the next step.
1: So what was that second, you mentioned olive leaf extract, and I think you, did you say cordyceps? Is that the mushroom? Is that what that is?
2: Mushrooms. Yeah. Yeah. So I I use those pretty much. You can get, you can get them anywhere at the moment and you can have those, you know, with your tea, you can have them with your smoothie and they, they really, for me personally, they really made a huge difference to my energy levels and just to me feeling a bit more alive.
1: I believe they're an adaptogen as well. So I think they're good for immune support, but they also help regulate your nervous system. Is that correct, Amanda?
2: As far as I know, yes.
1: So that's, that's Cordyceps, C-O-R-D-Y-C-E-P-S. And again, a very inexpensive mushroom people can buy to regulate their nervous system and also bolster their immune system to combat the Lyme bacteria. So again, here you are giving us tips that people can do in a very inexpensive way, right? So five is all about the immune system. Olive leaf extract, Cordyceps, anything
2: else in that step? Um... Yeah, and just the supplements that we spoke about in the previous step. Um, Vitamin C factored a lot in that for me as well. So um, vitamin C was actually almost as important as the glutathione was.
1: So how, how did you feel when you took vitamin C and glutathione? Because obviously those are super antioxidants, right? Which can yeah. help you with all of these toxic, you know, oxidants, things you know, these free radicals in your body that are causing damage to your cells. Mm-hmm. How did you feel when you took glutathione, whether it was through an IV or a supplement, et cetera, or, and also taking vitamin C? How did that, how did that help you feel physically?
2: Um, that helped me with my energy levels um, quite a bit. Um, so I took the glutathione and the vitamin C. I think I noticed pretty much the next day a difference in my energy levels and me feeling a little more awake
1: so before we get to step six i do want to bounce back to step three when we Mm -hmm. talked about the makeup and the toxins and removing all the toxic exposure you had in your life right yeah you were a model and part of being a model is and you are a model right but part of that is you have to wear makeup right you have to put things on your body like Mm -hmm. makeup and that's just I feel like an expectation of the industry. So Mm. how did you find clean makeup or was that, was that a struggle for you at the time being a model, making money to pay for all this, but also having to change what you're doing to look good, to be a model, because there's expectations there on that end. Right.
2: Yeah. So the, the, the first thing that I did is I stopped fashion modeling um, because with the, with the fashion modeling, I was it's so fast paced if you're working for example and it's it's London fashion week you're gonna have makeup on your face 10 times in that one space of time so I stopped fashion modeling for a while Um, I actually stopped modeling for a while at that point I mean I still model now but I mostly do commercial modeling and with that a lot of the times I will bring my own makeup with me and they seem to be fine with that There's, there's not an issue but at the time I didn't see a way that I could make that happen
1: so you prioritized your health and you stepped away from modeling to focus on yeah. your health. Yes. So let's bounce back now to step six. After the immune building phase of step, step five in this 10-step yeah. process given to you by Dr. Joshua at the Lyme Disease Treatment Center, what was next in step six?
2: Step six was supporting my mind health. So we were focusing more on reducing stress levels, um, getting me better sleep, um, treating my anxiety and my depression.
1: So this is an interesting step, right? Because I feel like so many people when they hear this, and I'll tell you, if this was me two years ago, Amanda, I would be like, I don't have to work on my mind. I'm sick. I have (laughs) bacteria in my body. I've been told I'm crazy by so many doctors. We talk about this a lot on this podcast, but first I just want to stop and say, I know you don't believe Amanda and we don't believe this is not all in your head. However, supporting your mind health is an extremely important process of the healing journey. And I know that so much of us have trauma because we've been told you're crazy. It's in your head. You should be in a psych ward. Some, some people have been institutionalized, like Ali Hilfiger here in the States, right? But I, we really need to focus on that mind health and emotion is really important in the healing process. So give us a little more detail. So you said you have to decrease your stress, treat yeah. your anxiety and depression, right? And what were you doing to decrease stress, treat your anxiety um, and depression, and also allow yourself to sleep better?
2: Yeah, so I I really started to do a lot of things that were prioritizing getting sleep. You know, making sure I'm going to bed at a reasonable hour. You know, and I I'm having a um a process that supports my bedtime, you know, not having screen time a couple of hours before bedtime, you know, so that my body starts to wind down, Um, you know, not eating four hours before I go to bed, you know, like using, use lavender, you know, to just, I was just really focused on just having as calm an environment as possible that would support me getting sleep. I started meditating as well. I got into meditation and another really huge tool that worked for me is I really got into tapping so um I found a YouTube video There was this guy called Brad Yates and there was a video he did on tapping for anxiety it was like six minutes and I remember thinking well it's worth a try you know what do I have to lose and I just I loved it I remember every time I would do it I started tapping every day you know 10 minutes of my day and that worked wonders in just reducing my anxiety and my stress.
1: So many of that was Brad Yates, B R A D Y A T E S, tapping, yes. right? Yes. Okay. I just did a Brad Yates tapping Google search and I found the YouTube video. So I'm going to do that when we finish this podcast yeah, because I love so learning many. new tools.
2: He's got so many videos. It's, it's amazing. And it's a free tool. He's got a lot of free, free videos. You can tap for anything. <laughs>
1: And so what did that really help you? That, that helps decrease your anxiety? What's How did that yeah. help you specifically?
2: Yeah, so basically when you're tapping, you're tapping through the meridian points um, in, in your head, in the body, and it just helps to reduce um, anxiety. It helps to calm your nervous system. Mm-hmm.
1: So we interviewed Dr. Tiffany Brownbush, who's actually another uh, Lyme doctor who's also a Lyme patient, and she's another huge advocate of tapping as well. So that's something that we need to explore more. There's a lot of commonalities here we're seeing in your interview that we wanted to share with our listeners that have been helpful for a lot of people, and and including Dr. Brownbush and all of our patients, right? So was, was there anything else? I mean, how bad was your anxiety and depression? Because some people in the community have it where it's crippling. They have such mm. crippling anxiety and depression. They can't leave the home because of the psychological symptoms due to Lyme. Never mind yeah. the physical side of things. Were you that bad, or was it just something that was really an annoyance rather than being debilitating for you?
2: Uh, my friends never saw me. Um, I I just became a shell of the person that I used to be. Um, I had anxiety with socializing. I started to get, get a, a serious anxiety over being in social situations or being outside um and then I actually started to have anxiety which you know like at the time I thought oh my gosh I would I would judge myself like why am I feeling so irrational I would have anxiety about being bitten or like being outside and be like okay where am I going like how much brass or like whatever what's around there so I just didn't really Do social things. Um, And I think I had depression from all the years of being told I was, you know, I was crazy, I was a hypochondriac and not being believed. It really took a toll on my mental health.
1: Amanda, do you think that that was trauma, you know, medical trauma from doctors? Because we, we interviewed Dr. Kinderler yesterday. And he talked to us about not only having medical trauma, meaning we've been Mm -hmm. treated so poorly by the medical community that we have this trauma, but also we can have trauma from the pathogen. So this whole term of PTSD can Mm. be triggered by actual doctors, the way they treat us. We have PTSD and trauma from the the experience we have in, in our, in our Lyme journey, but also the bacteria itself can trigger PTSD and trauma within our body. So do you think that was part of the, reason why you started to have this newly developed anxiety and depression?
2: I think that definitely played a huge part in it um, because having gone through, and I think that when I finally found Dr. Jes- Joshua Beckowitz, I'd been going through it for so long and I was in fight or flight you know, mode that when I finally found somebody who believed me, it was a shock to my system. <laughs> uh, I would have thought that having that confirmation Would have been a positive thing but it it i just everything else that i had been through suddenly just took me on a downward spiral i went through like a dark tunnel of just depression and anxiety over you know i till this day i actually still find it hard to talk to doctors about even the small things i find it hard to i would much rather going Look through something myself than actually go to the doctor because in my head, I'm like, well, they're not going to believe me. Well,
1: you're not alone in that. So I do want to focus on what you just said. So when you met Dr. Joshua, although he validated you, he confirmed you were sick and he was able to help you, that that still was triggering to you and caused you depression and anxiety. Is that what you said?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Why do you think that is? Because, you know, you're seeing a doctor finally believes you, you know, somebody on the outside who hasn't been through the experience would think, well, why didn't you feel good if finally somebody understands you and realized what was going on? Why do you think in your brain, you had this spiral of depression and anxiety when you've had a doctor who's validating you?
2: I think maybe in my brain on some level, if, if that hadn't happened, then everything else that had happened before wouldn't be so bad, you know? So I think finally finding a doctor who believed me was like, holy, oh my gosh, like, all those other doctors, all that I've been through all the time, all the money and all of that, that was real. So So it made it all that much more real.
1: So it was anger and it was frustration that all these doctors, I mean, you were sick. I mean, let's just talk about this here. You got symptoms when you were 18 and you got diagnosed when you were 31. So for 13 years, you were really sick fighting for your health and you weren't not fighting. You were fighting, but nobody could help you. So when you saw Dr. Joshua, you had these feelings of depression and anxiety because you felt let down by the community prior. And you yeah. had these feelings of, of anger and frustration as well. I think of what you're saying.
2: Yes, exactly.
1: So that's really that PTSD, right? The trauma from mm-hmm. the medical community. That's where that comes into play, I think. And that really the trauma is a trigger to those emotions you just described. So I think you, um, thank you for explaining that because that was a really brilliant way of explaining how you felt with Dr. Joshua. So let's talk, let's talk a little bit more now about step seven because we talked about step six just to recap step six is supporting your mind health decrease stress decrease anxiety and depression improve your sleep things like lavender tapping you were doing uh meditation okay even even not eating before bed actually uh, before we go to step seven let's talk about your your diet and food right because you mentioned you struggled that you were you know with anorexia a little bit you would you would binge and then purge and you had this Mm -hmm. issue do you believe that that anorexia is connected to lyme disease because again Dr. Kinderler, who's a specialist, you know, in the world for Lyme disease, talked to us about the connection between Lyme disease and anorexia and how there is a correlation there. So do you think that they were related in any way?
2: Um, I don't have any, like, scientific proof, but in my my head, I think they are. I think that um, the eating disorder definitely triggered something to do with the Lyme, but I can't prove that for sure.
1: And when it comes to food, I mean, I know for me, if I eat too much... If I eat natural sugar, I'm fine. I can have fruits. Mm -hmm. I can have veggies. But if I have fake sugar desserts, Mm -hmm. it is a huge trigger for me for inflammation, for symptoms like pain, but also for, you know, a mental state in a place where I don't want to be. It it almost makes me a little down, right? I don't feel as happy. So have you noticed that as well with food? What foods are triggers for you? What foods help you feel better physically and emotionally? And what foods help you make you feel not so great physically and emotionally?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I experience exactly the same with sugar, refined sugars. I don't have an issue with fruits and things like that. But when I have refined sugar, um, it's, it's not worth it. It's really not. Um, the inflammation, um, I feel groggy. I actually feel groggy, like I'm, you know, the brain fog comes back, Uh, sometimes like my muscles will ache as well, and I think maybe I'm just a bit more in, in tune now with my body and some of the symptoms, but I notice of all the things, and I react to a lot of other foods, but sugar, refined sugar has an almost instant effect on me.
1: All right, so now step seven. We're almost there. After mm-hmm. supporting your mind health, what is step seven in this ten-step? So process?
2: step seven is when we then started to work on killing the infection. Um, that was when um, he got me started on um, the antibiotics.
1: So, but it sounds like you were retested prior to step seven.
2: Yes. Once,
1: and, and that's when Lyme came back, right? So, why yes. did Doctor Doctor Joshua decide to test in the beginning of part one? Mm-hmm. And then test again. Is that because he has he has that knowledge of as we start to detox and as we start to do these certain things in your life, we're more likely to get a positive test once we begin the process. I'm guessing that's where his, his head was that, at with this. That's
2: that's exactly what it was. Um, that's why when he warned me when we first tested that don't don't get down if it comes back negative, like it it it's fine, it usually will. We'll test you again. And that's why we went through this whole protocol so that I guess like everything that we've done, step one to six, helped bring the lime up.
1: So now in step seven, with all the testing done previously, what were you testing positive for? Because I I think you have Babesia based on the night sweats that you were talking about earlier. So I'm I'm thinking Babesia, Lyme disease, obviously you had parasites, you had heavy metals we know about. Was there anything else that's noteworthy for the listeners to to hear about what you tested positive for and you were starting to treat in the kill phase during step seven?
2: Those are the main ones, I think. Um, I think like the Babesia and the parasites and the heavy metals were the three main big ones that showed up for me.
1: And from Lyme, was Lyme a clinical diagnosis? You said Babesia, heavy metals, and parasites. Was Lyme Mm -hmm. really not, or or do you think it was just Babesia, not Lyme for you?
2: Um, He tested for Lyme as well, and he came back positive.
1: It did. Okay. So it was Lyme, Babesia, heavy metals, and parasites were the keys. Now, what were you doing during the kill phase? What specifically were you doing to kill off the Lyme, Babesia? Because we know Lyme requires, if you're going to go Western, it requires antibiotics, but Babesia requires an anti-malaria drug. Heavy metals require generally some sort of either pharmaceutical binder or natural binder, right? Um, parasites require a lot of different tools, too, to help kill the parasites and, and detox them from your body. So what was, what was in yeah. your toolbox based on your testing and diagnoses to now kill all the things that were getting you sick?
2: Yeah, so we, we treated the Lyme last, actually. So we, we worked on treating the Babesia. We treated the, um, the heavy metal. And we, the parasite, we've been we've been doing that um, for months, and then when we finally got to the Lyme, we were doing um, antibiotics like IV antibiotics um, for a while, and um, I was on those for some months actually. I was on I was I was on treatment for about six months. We were going and treating that, and then. Um, I think like um, Dr. Joshua Beckwith does recommend long-term antibiotic use. The issue that came for me was in the cost of the treatment. So we, I did about six months and then after that it just became too much, like quite a lot of money. I just couldn't afford it. So
1: you did six months, Do
2: do you know what kind of
1: antibiotics you were
2: using through the IV? I can't remember.
1: Okay, probably ceftriaxone. Is, is. There's a couple of common ones out there that are that are used. But so when when you address the heavy metals, do you recall how Dr. Joshua addressed the heavy metals?
2: Um, he he put me on some um, supplements and some. We there were some drugs that he made me take um, for the heavy metal detox when we did the detox, and then he put me on some drugs for them.
1: So let's talk about the parasites because parasites can be an ugly topic. And a lot of people don't feel comfortable speaking about parasites because ultimately when you pass a parasite, if they're a GI based parasite, they come out when you go to the bathroom, right? Yeah. So did you go through that experience Were you, were they, were they primarily intestinal parasites or were you also dealing with like microscopic brain parasites and parasites in your bloodstream or was it mostly in your GI tract and you were seeing them come out and having that nasty experience that many of us have been through?
2: I was seeing them come out. It is, it is the most horrifying experience I have ever had in my life for a long time. I would be in the bathroom just screaming because what on earth is this? Yeah. Did that thing just come out of me?
1: <laughs> now, Amanda, did I, did, did, this is another question we hear often about parasites. Did it ever stop? Right. Cause some people, you know, we had this discussion with a lot of leading Lyme doctors. If you keep mm-hmm. treating parasites and they never stop coming out, then there's something else going on in your body making your body hospitable to these parasites if they're coming out in such large quantities. So in Mm. your experience, did they decrease in quantity or did they end up stop coming out? How did you know when you were done or when to stop treating these parasites?
2: Um, I think that they they decreased in quantity at the time and then um, none were coming out after a while. So I was really happy about that because I didn't really want to go through that.
1: (laughs) So it sounds like everything else you were doing, Amanda was supporting your body and allowed your body to maintain a state of not harboring parasites. And that's why eventually they stopped coming out. Your doctor said you're good and you stopped treating, correct? Yes. Okay. So, I mean, you're, this is a brilliant outline and you have so much great information. I'm sorry for being so, (laughs) so uh, I think I'm grilling
2: you here, but this is just That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about step eight. What was step step eight? Step eight was all about binding toxins. Um, so I was encouraged to do a lot of like the detox baths, um, that is like, you know, when you use a, like bath salts, um, activated charcoal, um, it's, it's very much a part of my life even now, um, lymphatic drainage massage, um, yeah. And taking supplements or taking supplements like, um, chlorella to just help bind whatever toxins, you know, were in my system.
1: How did you respond when you took chlorella? Because everybody who listens to this podcast knows that Rich had a really bad experience with chlorella. And of course, Rich, people can't see Rich, but he's he's <laughs> laughing and shaking his head right now. But, you, we, you know, Rich and I both taking chlorella. I had a really positive experience to chlorella. I mean, it yeah. really helped me rid myself of a lot of toxins. And I did have some flares because of it, but it was a really good yeah. experience. And I was up to 30 capsules of Dr. Rolls's chlorella and Rich could barely take one without being in the bathroom almost all day, right? So, oh, you know- no. So what did you, how did you, where
2: did you fall? I had, I had, I had mostly positive. I did, I did also have a couple of flare-ups, but nothing, you know, that outweighed the positive from taking it. It's
1: very much like my experience in that one. So it sounds like you went
2: through that, Rich. (laughs) It doesn't sound like fun.
1: Yeah. And, and I, I'm a little guilty because I was, I was peer pressuring Rich to do that. So I was, I, you know, we peer pressure each other to improve our health. So I'm like, Rich, yeah. you got to do it. You got to do it. It's wonderful. And he did it. And he had a really bad experience with it. So uh, I, I'm, I'm a little at fault for that one there, but it sounds like the binding with toxins is very similar to what you did in step three. Also in step three, it was mm-hmm. reducing toxins, but more, I guess, lifestyle, like that was more like makeup. And that was more, uh, you know, different things you use in your house and on your body and then step yeah. eight was more let's get these things outside from the inside of my body right let's take these things that are in my body and get them out right that's the difference there between step three and yeah. eight. Yes. okay so when you were doing all this with the binders it sounds like the, you, for the most part you were having a positive experience but a few flares because like mm. you said earlier you're mobilizing these toxins in your bloodstream and you're going to feel a little inflammation and flaring while you're getting them out of your body right yeah
2: exactly.
1: okay so then what's what's step nine
2: Step nine was um, just all the things that I could, tools that I could use to reduce inflammation in my body. And it was also things that I can do, anybody can do like at home, like using turmeric, um, like ginger root, spirulina, um, just taking all those things to just help reduce or bring down inflammation. That's something that I really struggled with anytime I got tested, my inflammation markers were through the roof.
1: And again, just like even on step eight, I mean, chlorella is really inexpensive. I take it. Rich take, has taken it. Yeah. So these are all things that you had to go and spend a ton of money for to, to learn about. But people that are listening can try these things and get some, some relief by figuring out what is affordable, what can I try, and how can I start yeah. taking steps in the right direction, right? And that's what I love so much about this outline is so much of this is not like I have to go spend a ton of money to go to Germany to get hyperthermia. This is stuff we can buy <laughs> online to start to improve our lives, right? And that, that's, that's yeah. what I like about this protocol.
2: Yeah. So from and, inflammation, um, oh, sorry. Another good one is bromelain from that. Um, I, I, I got really, really um great positive results from taking it.
1: In regards to inflammation? Yes. So are, are these, so with bromelain is, is this, were you buying it from Dr. Joshua or is there a specific brand you can recommend for people listening? Because you talked um, about obviously turmeric, ginger root, spirulina, bromelain, you know, Yeah. You have any recommendations for specific products for our listeners with those? Um,
2: I was getting all everything um, from Dr. Joshua, but you can you can get this stuff, you know, from any like reputable health store. Um, it's just making sure that it's just like pure, I guess, and doesn't have any added, added added things to it.
1: And I believe bromelain and Rich probably can acknowledge by shaking his head because I know he knows this. I think that's also from pineapple, correct? Yes. I think you'd be a pineapple that's in there. So there's even foods and fruits you can eat. That'll give you these substances and chemicals that can help decrease inflammation, right? So these are things you yeah. can get in your diet as well.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
1: So let's talk about the final step. What is step 10?
2: Final step um, is an unexpected one. It was exercise. Ooh. Um, but not exercises I was used to. Um, it was just encouraging movement, you know. Um, whether it's stretching, I just really got into yoga, you know, and as I started to get into yoga, I started doing kundalini yoga, and it was just um, a lot of movement, and um, he was just really encouraging, like, you know, it it really helps. It sounds counterintuitive, especially from somebody who's chronically ill, but I was more used to going hard at the gym, you know, but this was more like, no, this is just movement, you know, like just mind-body connections just help the body move more.
1: So, Mind, I want to add to that because I think this is a really important topic, and Dr. Biora Scano, who is one of the leading Lyme doctors that really was the first doctor here in the 70s on Long Island treating Lyme disease in an appropriate way, he says if people don't move when treating chronic Lyme disease, they're simply not gonna get better. And that doesn't mean you have to go run a marathon, right? We're not saying that. We know that can be intimidating and it can be scary, but I think I'm a really good use case for this. And I think you are as well, where I was completely bed bound. I couldn't walk to the bathroom. And I know you said you could, barely, yeah. you, you could barely walk as well. You could barely stand, right? So we were at these places where our bodies were completely failing us. But even if it's simple stretches, every single day I wake up and I do stretches. And it take, it's about a 10 to 15 minute regimen that I do gentle yeah. stretches, gentle exercises just to build some, you know, to build some muscles, some, some resistance training that I do. And then I try to walk as much as possible every single day. And as, as little as that sounds, it has been extremely helpful in my healing journey. And I'm, I'm trying to do more and I know it can be frustrating for people like mm-hmm. you and I, Amanda, because we were so go hard before we got sick, right? I mean, I was, a, I was an avid runner. You were yeah. a go hard person as well. So it's frustrating, but that doesn't mean we can't do little things, little pieces of movement that really help our journey in this healing, in this healing experience with Lyme disease. So how important do you feel this has been for you and your healing journey, Amanda?
2: Oh my goodness. So important. Um, just, and you know, walking is an underrated one. It's so underrated, you know, just taking a walk every day, you know, taking, doing some stretches, it's, I, I, I just can't function without doing it now. And I do notice as well, because there are times when I just will feel horrible that I'll just be lying on the couch for two days and I feel it. And then I, you know, I'm like, okay, we're not going to like go running or do whatever, but we can do a 10 minute yoga stretching routine. You know, they even have some that you can do from sitting on your couch. You can do, and it really makes a difference.
1: So I know this is the whole, the going hard part of it that we love. I think because also that for me, at least was, the happy drug, right? I I, I don't know, it it released the endorphins, it released all the happy chemicals in my brain and the harder I went, the better I felt. But it also was counterproductive because it's immunosuppressive. And when we're dealing with Lyme disease and a variety of toxins, having an immunosuppressive behavior like going hard and exercising is really bad for overall health. And I think in my case, that maybe contributed to my chronic illness, right? So there's a balance there. I mean, would you so do you think for you as well, Amanda, that you're going hard was resulting in you becoming immunosuppressive which made your body now fall into this chronic illness state at some point.
2: Yes, hundred percent, you know, and I, knowing what I know now, I just, I I wouldn't do it at all. And educating myself as well. And just realizing going hard is not, is not the be all and end all. You can still support your health, you know, by doing gentle exercise.
1: So, I mean, you went from being in bed 16 hours a day, yeah, You went from being so sound and noise sensitive where you could barely watch TV, you said, right? Mm-hmm. You would wake up shaking. You said you needed help going to the bathroom. This is how sick you were. So I'm yeah. emphasizing this because I mean, clearly you've made it a radical transformation here. So give us an idea now, I guess before you even get to where you worked in step 10, how long did it take you to get through the 10 step process through the Lyme disease treatment center with Joshua, Dr. Joshua?
2: So I was working with Dr. Joshua for two years. Um, that's about how long it took me to get through that process Um, I started to feel better about a year in where I felt like I could kind of function um, on my own and then um, now I I would say yeah I feel like I have a handle on I've so much more awareness of what to do to help myself as well. So there are things like, you know, we were just talking about, you know, refined sugar, for example. There are a lot of things that are within my control that I can do. Um, How I eat is a big one. Um, What I put into my body is a big one. Same as with with the toxins and, you know, makeup and things like that. Um, But there are also things that have just been incorporated into, I've just incorporated them as just a part of my life. So instead of maybe I used to do infrared saunas Three, four times a week, maybe I'll go to one once a week or once every couple of weeks. And that's something that I give myself. You know, it's like, this this is what I'm giving to myself for my to continue to feel better. Um, I don't feel bad anymore about not being a social butterfly. (laughs) You know, I need to be in bed by this nine. You know, my sleep is important to me and I prioritize that even with my kids. Like my older son is. is, a preteen and I'm like, well, good night. <laughs> you started out with your dad or whoever, I'm out. Um, but I'm, I'm now at a place where I think I'm just so much more aware of my body and what works, what doesn't work, what I'm putting into it, what not, without being obsessive about it. And um, that's really just helping me to keep going and keep supporting my immune system.
1: And I think it's it, there's a balance to strike there, right? You can't obsess about what you're putting in your body, but, but you also said, well, I go to bed early and I do certain things like I do a sauna every single day, but you're also not going and eating a ton of sugar and then saying, why do I feel like crap, right? So yeah. you're not obsessing, but you're also making smart decisions to maintain a healthy environment in your body So these microbes that are there, because we're always gonna have microbes in our body, whether it's Lyme disease or opportunistic microbes or even just our gut microbes, right? Mm -hmm. They can come out and wreak havoc if we don't take care of our bodies. And that's the lesson we learned through this chronic, chronic Lyme journey. And I think that's what you just so brilliantly described, Amanda, in your comment there. So how do you strike that balance of, I don't want to obsess, but also mm-hmm. I can't overdo it and have, you know, a ton of cake and then expect to feel healthy or, you yeah. know, go exercise hard and then not expect to be, you know, have this immunosuppressive event and then feel like crap the next day. So what do, what do yeah. you do in your daily life to, to, to balance that out?
2: You know, if I want to have a piece of cake, I will have it. You know, it's, I'm, I'm not going to sit there and obsess and be like, I can't have this, but then I'm having it fully aware of the effects that it's going to have on me and be like, okay, well then that's, You know, that's the choice that I've made. Basically, it's about the choices that you make and you choose to make um, and having more awareness about it. Um, um, Stress levels is something that, you know, is within our control. Sometimes not, but most of the time, you know, if something is like a stressor, I have started to um, get back in the gym and um, do some resistance training, but I do that once a week now whereas before i was doing it four or five times a week and if i'm getting to the gym and i have a day where i feel like "Mm," i I found a personal trainer to work with that i i I told my history to, and like this is what I, this is what I'm experiencing, and all this stuff. So he's not one of those ones. like, you can go heavier, you can do more, you know. Like I had a session yesterday, and I said to him, I'm not feeling particularly like that energetic. He was like, right, let's just do some yoga and do some stretches and call it a day. So that's the balance that I'm finding. I'm like, okay, I'm still going to show up and do it, but like, what what is it that I need the most now to support myself, you know? And um putting myself in stressful environments is something that I don't do at all, you know, and I've realized I'm I'm, I'm never gonna be that social butterfly who was at parties all the time, drinking till 3 a.m., you know, and I've had to kind of lay that life to rest and say goodbye to it, but my health is way more important. But
1: Amanda, that wasn't healthy behavior then even when you were healthy, (laughs) correct? So you were engaging in unhealthy behavior. It's not healthy for anybody to be up till four or five in the morning drinking alcohol in excess because it's really bad for us in so many ways, right? So as much as I, look, I get it. It's fun, (laughs) right? But those aren't healthy behaviors to promote health in our body. So you've decided that your health is more important than... A night of fun, right? I mean, that's what you yeah. decided,
2: but, uh, but also it's redefining really fun, right? Like yes, I'm redefined what fun is for me. So now, like, I can go to a retreat. Like, I love going to like these wellness gatherings or like yoga retreats and stuff, and that's fun to me.
1: And, and I wish our listeners could see you because you are just glowing with this positive energy. You are just glowing with this happiness. Right. So, right. define happiness and define fun. I mean, a night of drinking and staying up all night could be, quote unquote, fun. But look yeah. at you now. You're healthy and you are just filled with this happiness. Right. So define that term for us. But, I, you know, I just want to circle back to another point you made. Right. Because you said you start to know your limits and you start mm-hmm. to. You had, to, you had to vocalize with your trainer. Hey, look, I'm not doing well. If you didn't speak up, you would have been yeah. overtrained and you would have been hurting physically and from an immune standpoint, right? But you had to learn to speak up for yourself to make sure that you maintain those limits that aren't gonna be breached so you don't get sick. And also, as we start to feel better and heal, a lot of things that we were sensitive to in the past may not really impact as much anymore. So you said, hey, I can have a piece of cake if I want to, right? But I'm okay. sure a piece of cake today is not what it was to you a couple of years ago when you were really sick, right? So you can have it now and maybe not even feel bad. But uh, you know, a yeah. couple of years ago, it would have put you in bed for a week afterwards, right? So as your yeah. body heals, you have more tolerances to things because you're healing your body, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. You know, and also I have tools as well. You know, I could be like, I'll have a piece of cake now and I'll take some activated charcoal <laughs> with it and hopefully minimize the toxins that I'm getting from that. You know.
1: Yeah. We've had some extremes on this podcast where guests have told us, Hey, I'll go out and drink all night. And you know what? I'll just come back in the morning and I'll take a ton of binders to soak it all up and oh, get it out of me. I'm not sure if that's the best <laughs> thing to do. Right. But there's, there's so many tools to your point, right? I mean, it, it, not that we recommend drinking all night and yeah. taking a binder in the morning to, to pull out the, you know, the, the toxins, but that's, that's, we learn these types of things that can help us. Right. Mm-hmm. So I know we've, we've taken up a lot of your time. My final question before Rich picks up and concludes the interview with you is, you know, looking back at your journey, this 13 year pre-diagnostic, you know, before, You got diagnosed and this two year healing journey. If you had to look back and change one thing, what would that one thing be? I mean, it's a really hard question, but there's so much that you share with us. And I feel like, you know, I mean, I can think of so many, so I'm curious to see what your answers mean. What would you change if you can go back and change one moment in time in your Lyme journey?
2: I feel like if I could go back in time knowing what I know, I would go back to that first time I was bitten by the tick. And um, just tackle it from there. And hopefully, you know, save myself <laughs> over a decade of pain. Yeah.
0: So, Amanda, uh, I, I know our, our listeners are going to absolutely love you when they have the blessing of listening to this podcast. And, 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 and I'd like you to talk to us now about your transformation. Uh, you know, some people call it post traumatic growth. Um, how has this been a growth experience for you? In addition to all of the things you've already discussed with Matt, where you're more aware of your body, you're more aware yeah. of what you're putting in your body, you're, you're more moderate about your exercise, you are setting limits. I mean, you've become a very, very, you know, smart and, and 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 capable person of 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 managing this, you know, this beautiful body that you have. But talk about how you've grown in other ways and how that transformation is now. Uh, put you in a position where you now feel called to use your experiences to help other people and lead other people through chronic illness?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think that going through this journey, I mean, I'm finally at a point where I have gratitude for it, because as you say, there's no way you can't not experience growth (laughs) going through all of that. And it's connected me with what I wanted to do even before I was ill, I was very much into wellness, you know, and I very much wanted to create something at the time. I thought it was a magazine, right? It was before, you know, the digital world became so popular. Um, And now I think I'm I'm so much more confident as well than myself and my journey that I would love to create a wellness platform where, we can connect and share resources and support each other. And I think that that was the biggest hurdle I had when I was going through this, like finding other people who understand what I'm going through and like all these other things. Even if you don't have Lyme, there's so many other wellness tools that you can use to enhance your life. And I I really, really want to do that.
0: So let's focus on that a minute, right? Because you've always had this passion for wellness, uh, your education, your training, your desires, and we talked about early on in this podcast, we're all about creating a wellness platform. But then you engaged in behaviors that um, were not really um, focusing on wellness. In fact, it exploited wellness to the point where your beauty was on display um, in a way that wasn't really... Focusing on wellness, and yeah. then your body said no, and then you had to recover from that, and now you're back to the place where you started, right? Where mm-hmm. you now know what God created you to do. You now know what you are, uh, what you were always created to do, because it was something that you had a passion from from your childhood, and now you're in a place where you have this really powerful platform, which is how we discovered you, where you're not using your appearance and your wellness in an exploitive way you're actually using it in a very positive and a very healthy way so talk about that transition how again you are a model you have a beautiful you make a beautiful appearance and at one time you were using that in a way that was exploitive and now you're using it in a way that's actually supporting people and helping people you're using it as a way of getting attention to wellness and health and recovery
2: um, I think when I think about that time, I feel like all my my motives were external. It didn't come from within. You know, I was trying to, it's like a, a what do they call it? A square peg trying to fit yourself in a round hole. That's what I was. You know, I was looking at what I thought I wanted to be or who I needed to be and then changing myself in order to fit into the image that I thought I had to be. And I didn't realize that, you know, This has been a a long journey of self-love and getting to a point where I love myself enough to take care of myself and value myself and coming from that space, then I can create from that knowing that who I am is enough. I don't need to change myself. I don't need to be what I think I should be. I can trust that who I am and what I have to offer is enough. And there is somebody out there who will connect to that. Right.
0: And rather than chasing money and yeah. reforming your body and your appearance to chase money, you've now come to the conclusion that actually, I am enough. Mm-hmm. I can be well. And in helping other people to become well and understand that they're enough, that's when, that's when the real financial support will, uh, will come.
2: Yes. Couldn't have said it better myself
0: so so that I don't ruin this beautiful moment I'm going to take you to the last part of the take boot camp podcast and uh, one of the things that uh, our followers who will soon get to know you and love you the way we do when they follow you on instagram will know that you are a boy mom and I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to exploit it it's really <laughs> beautiful by the way uh, you know we, we were really blessed to you know meet them through your instagram and the way your children are presented uh so let's talk about your pre-teed song uh, that beautiful young man who uh, you, you're now parenting. He comes yeah. walking into your room right after this podcast and he has a tick biting him. Uh, after you get through the freak out moment, uh, what are you going to do so that he doesn't have to go on a chronic journey the way you have?
2: I am immediately, well, I'm lucky that I have, you know, I have, I, I have a direct line to the treatment center, Lyme treatment center. I'm taking him there immediately that's what i'm going to do i'm saving the tick as
0: well so you're going to save the tick, and you're going to make sure that he has the proper medical intervention and he gets a treatment that you would have given yourself yes you and of course your mother would have given to you had she been aware yeah and of course we want to urge all of our listeners and and the people in your community to come to the tick boot camp website and look at the tick by blueprint awesome all right, Amanda, thank you so much for taking time out of uh, your life and taking so much time out of your life to share your beautiful journey with the uh, folks uh, who are following the Tick Bootcamp community.
2: Thank you for having me. This I've never gone through my journey like this before, so it's been quite um, nice to, to be able to tell my story. So thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Amanda Milley. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Amanda Milley, please visit our Instagram page at man's Millie. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past guests on this podcast. We are you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view our blueprint. Please know we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get you automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp Podcast. And finally, we thank your community for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you, as always, for listening.